So Money episode 985, the best of 2019 for our niche favorites. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. January 1st, 2020. Happy New Year. You're looking forward to the new decade? I am. We're almost a thousand episodes in, five years of this podcast. And today I thought it would be nice to go back in time again, but this time reflect on some of the conversations that really hit home for me. Not to be selfish, but I think it's all relatable. There were definitely some moments this year when I had to stop and take notes or began taking a guest advice quite seriously in my own life as a mother, as a wife, as a business owner, as a feminist. And as we all start a new year, this episode is full of motivation and inspiration to guide us towards all of our goals, whatever they are. On this episode, we're going to hear from Karen Minaldi, who's the author of It's Great to Suck at Something. Eve Rotsky, who's also an author of a book called Fair Play, Paul Ollinger, a comedian and podcast host, and Busy Phillips, the actress and social media maven. We begin with Karen Rinaldi. Karen wrote the book called It's Great to Suck at Something, The Unexpected Joy of Wiping Out and What It Can Teach Us About Patience, Resilience, and the Stuff That Really Matters. Personally, Karen is talking about her sucking at surfing. She admits she's not that good at it, but something keeps her going back into the ocean for more. And it was this interesting relationship that got her wondering if maybe there was more to the madness. Is there a benefit to doing something that you aren't good at? For me, I thought tennis. I'm terrible at tennis, but I love the ritual of tennis. I love getting to the court. I love the smell of fresh tennis balls. I love even hitting the net, you know, starting over and trying to serve again and again and doing it for hours and loving the person on the other side of the court who has been patient with me, who's secretly trying to hide how good they are at tennis. I think tennis humbles me. I think that it's a good workout and I just love it for some reason. Isn't that weird? We all have that thing, right? Think about it. What is that thing that you love to suck at? (laughs) And this clip with Karen captures her talking about how to think about this, how to approach sucking at something, how to move on from it, or should you? Here's Karen. If you perfect this, should you move on to something else that you suck? Is the goal to continue sucking or do you actually want to perfect it or get better at it? Okay. So this is, it's interesting because this is a question that comes up a lot in one, in one guise or another. And I understand the tension in this idea. So the idea is that, listen, if you do something, if you start something new, so this is to propel you into something new without fear, without fear of failing and without having a necessary goal, that's, that's the, the premise of this idea of sucking at something. However, when you do something with intention and you do it a lot, you're going to get better at it. You just will. I mean, I listen, I can surf. I paddle out. I can catch waves. I ride the face of a wave. I can kick out. It's awesome when it happens. 
Um, I'm not good at it. It's not pretty, but I can do it. And by the way, I couldn't do it in the beginning. It took me a really long time to learn. So the idea is that, yeah, if you do something, if you're going to do pottery, you know, a lot of the clay is going to wind up on the floor and your pot, pot you're going you're to make, you know, crap pottery and all that stuff. But, you know, every once in a while, you're going to craft something that's beautiful. The idea is to not get hung up on that goal, to not get hung up on the reward, because so much of our life is about that reward and the goal setting. So we start out with a certain level of anxiety and stress. And I'm saying, let go of that anxiety and stress and, and that myth or that lie of perfection, right? Let go of that and do it anyway. And in the book, I tell the story of uh, one of the greatest ballet dancers of all time, Mikhail Baryshnikov. And when I met him, I was working with him on a book as a publisher. And when I met him, um, it was this amazing moment. And I won't go, the, the story in the book goes into detail, and it's actually a pretty funny story. But one of the things I asked him was like, what are you doing after our meeting? And this is Mikhail Burshnikov. And he said, I'm going to dance lessons. And I thought, <laughs> lessons. The greatest, the greatest dancer in the world is going to dance lessons. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I never stop learning. I never, never stop taking lessons. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a frame of mind. So that idea that, you know, perfecting it is like, what is that? I don't think the, the, I want to bust the myth of the myth, sorry, of perfectionism, because I don't believe that perfectionism actually exists. I think it's, it's a lie. It's a, it's a lie that captures a lot of us and drives our egos to the point where we're immobile and we're afraid to try something new. Listen, I do a lot of things well. I don't, I mean, I suck at surfing, but there are things in my life that I do quite well. Um, I don't do any of them perfectly. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I would never say that there's anything I do that is perfect. So for me to say, I'm such a perfectionist, which is a line you, we all hear all the time is really just a protection against the future failing. And that's sad to me. You know what I mean? Why would you put up that roadblock to yourself? I'm such a perfectionist that dot, dot, dot. I can't finish this. I can't start that. I'm afraid to perform. I'm afraid to do this. You know, you do stand up, right? The first time you do stand up, you know, you, you had to let go of that notion of that lie of perfectionism because it doesn't exist actually this i feel really dovetails what we're hearing more and more of now uh from people like dr Brene brown who was like lean into your vulnerability yes yes and and so this book is very timely right it's it's not just because we have this fixation on perfectionism but because also there is a lot of data and science and psychology behind the rewards of being your weakest self sometimes or what we perceive to be weakness, but it's actually strength. Because if you allow exactly. yourself to get vulnerable, that's being strong. Exactly. And I think that's the big kind of jujitsu move, right? <laughs> Which is we think all these things are signs of weakness, right? right. Failure, failure, trying over and over again, reiterating, um, um, you know, um, not giving up, but underneath all of that, underneath the quote unquote sucking at something, you find that there's so much resilience um, that you have. There's patience that you have. There, you know, Kristen Neff talks about self compassion. Brene Brown talks about vulnerability. You know, the Buddhists talk about letting go of you know a pre a, a preconceived outcome, right? You have to, there, you know, there's, there's wisdom in all the mystic, mystical, uh, traditions and a lot of theology. And what's happening is that 
that wisdom is now being backed by neuroscience and sociological studies and, and, you know, these progressive thinkers in the space of psychology and, um, and, and, you know, where the brain and the mind meet. So there's a lot of research, but I also think, I don't think, I don't think it's a mistake that right now we're hearing it because I think we've got to a place in our culture where there's, you know, I, I call it aspirational dread. You know, the, you know, we're taught to be aspirational in everything we do so that we don't appreciate how hard so many things really are mm-hmm. to do. And therefore we do two things. So the, what we do is we, we think it's, you know, we don't appreciate how hard it is. We just think that people who are good at things got there, you know, because they were lucky or because they were innately talented. What we don't see underneath it is all of the hard work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time to sort of, you know, you know, pull the cover off of that and notice the hard work. A. B, I feel like we are living in a time where, you know, social media makes it look like everybody else's life, you know, is, is, you know, so much prettier, better, smarter, richer, you know, more successful than ours, because what we do is we curate what goes out in the world, we curate ourselves, and all of a sudden, everybody has access to it. Instead of saying, you know, I want to show I would, you know, I hope that, you know, I can create a thing where everybody talks about what they suck at. And by the way, you can't talk about what other people suck at, because the, the whole point of this is to look at yourself and laugh at yourself and appreciate your efforts. And then you can go and appreciate other people's efforts without pointing the finger and saying, Hey, yeah, look at that person. He or she sucks at that. So it's not about judgment. It's about, it's about, you know, self-compassion. And then you take that self-compassion and you can turn it outward and appreciate everybody else's efforts as well. I like the notion of appreciating the difficulty in things. Yes. I like that a lot. So it does sound like this, to some extent, has to be an exercise of uh, of finding something that is physical in nature, an an active thing, Um, cycling, riding. Can it be like sucking at relationships? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? This is what this. Okay. So this is this dovetails actually really well into the 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 kind of the benefit of of this thing, because what so so does it have to be physical? No, I know somebody who does crossword puzzles. Somebody could do knitting. Somebody could do um, I don't know if it has to be parenting. No, I'm writing. I mean, writing is like writing is every writer sucks at writing Mm -hmm. because if you don't suck at writing, you're never going to get to the good stuff. No. Nobody sits down and writes an essay, a book, you know, an article, a novel or any of it without writing crap first. Right. So writers have to just, you don't have to get published. You know what I mean? Like you can, I wrote for 30 something years without getting published. And it was that thing of just, I'm going to write it and put it away and write it and put it away and write it and put it away. And instead of writing to publish, I wrote because I wanted to write and because it gave me pleasure and I sucked at it. I did. I mean, I really did. It took me a long time to hone that skill. Um, and even though I'm in the world and I have access to all great writers and great, you know, great information, it didn't matter. Like I felt like I wasn't ready. And I, so I feel like it doesn't have to be something physical. I feel like it could be a lot. It could be languages. I know people who study languages and aren't good at it, but they love to study languages. So, so what if you speak Spanish badly, right? So it could be, you know, more of a cerebral pursuit as well. But the idea is to start something you love that you get a kick out of, um, that you don't pressure yourself to succeed in. You learn something about yourself 
by the resilience it takes to go forward and by enjoying the process. So much of this, it's the old, old adage of, you know, it's about the journey. It's not about, you know, it's not about the destination. I mean, it's so old school, but that's really partly what this is about. But what happens is that when you suck at something, and you, you learn the tools to forgive yourself, to dig deep for, for that, you know, the tenacity and grit that you, you know, Angela Duckworth talks about grit, like mm-hmm. the people talk about a lot of aspects of this. When you have access to that stuff, when you suck at like relationships or parenting and God knows these are the things that's relation, your partnering, your partnership and relationships, your, your parenting and work right? Those are the things you're not really supposed to suck at, right? I mean, you, <laughs> and your money, I must say. <laughs> and, but, well, money's, money's huge, actually. Yeah. Money's really huge um, about that because, you know, money's, money's hard because there's a lot of emotional stuff mm-hmm. attached to money, yeah. money, that self, self-worth, um, you know, f- a- access to, access to it. And people are really messed up about money. And I think that what happens is that you have to look at these things somewhat dispassionately, not that you're dispassionate about money, you know, work, parenting or partnering, but allowing yourself to fail in it. Cause listen, I, I, I'm, you know, we, we were talking about parenting before we started recording and you said, Oh, you know, you know, you said you're a great mother. And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I hope I am. And, and it's the thing I care about being best at, but I can mark, and this, there are some anecdotes in the book where I'm not modeling the best for my kids. Like there are times when I screw that up too. And the idea is when you're, when you, when you exercise that muscle of forgiving yourself and understanding how you can, you know, suck at something or mess up when you do that, where it really matters in your work and your relationship and your, and, and with your kids, you you can catch yourself and forgive yourself without going way out of control and doing that loop that you do is like, you know, I'm worthless and I'm horrible and I did the wrong thing and maybe I'm a bad mother. And it's like, no, you had a moment. You had a moment that was less than stellar and you go, yeah, but I know what that feels like. And I still love myself and I am still worthy of love. And you catch it and you say, "Hmm, what can I learn from this? As opposed to going into a tailspin, which is what I think you know, a lot of us do, um, when we mess up. So I think it gives you the tools to deal with suckitude mm-hmm. for the things that really matter. Suckitude. That's a new word for 2020, right? I like it. And speaking of things that suck in many relationships, there is an inequality as far as domestic work goes, right? Most women and men would admit that most of the housework the domestic drudgery, and even the emotional work falls on the shoulders of wives, moms, all women. My next guest, Eve Rotsky, joined me on So Money on episode 960 as she was sharing the findings from her New York Times bestseller, Fair Play. In this clip, she describes some of the simple steps to create more peace on the home front. Good advice for all partners. Here's Eve Rotsky. The hook of this book is really that it's a game. You've gamified this. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is a game. It is a absolute, the heart of fair play is a game. And the beauty of this game is that you hold task cards. There's a hundred cards in the fair play system. And each you and your partner, you hold cards that you value, that you've talked about before, that you value. And then it's not a death sentence. You don't have to hold them forever. You redeal, but it's all based on the rules of that you find in the book, but everything you need to know about the fair play game, I like to say, and that you can learn from just one word. And that word is mustard. 
And what I mean by that is somebody in your household knows that second son Johnny, your second son only eats protein with French's yellow mustard, that that's how he gets his protein down. That's in the business world what we call conception. Then someone has to be the one to notice when the mustard's low and put it on a grocery list along with other groceries for the week. That's what we call business planning. And then someone actually has to get their butt to the store to purchase the yellow mustard. And that's in business what we call execution. And that's where men step in, in my research, over 500 men and women that mirror the U.S. Census. I found men were stepping in at the execution stage. And that's a big problem because they bring home spicy Dijon, the gross mustard <laughs> with the seeds in it. Forget or even ketchup. the right category. Yes, right. Yes, but the category, right. But it, when they do bring home the right category of mustard and it's a gross one with seeds in it that your son would never touch. Yeah. Then men all over the country were, and actually the world, because I have interviews in Japan, the UK, Australia, and Norway. They were saying to me, I'm not, I can't do anything right. I'm failing at the home stuff because even when I go to the grocery store for my wife or my partner, because this happens same sex couples too, I'm being shamed because I'm bringing home the wrong thing. Hmm. And then women, women all over the world were saying to me, Eve, you want me to trust him with ownership of our estate planning, our living will, our healthcare directive? He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. And so it's not about blueberries, right? It's not about um, mustard. It's really about trust. And it's not about getting to 50-50. Like the, the, no. It's not about you get no. 50 cards, I get 50 cards. Let's talk about that too, because I think there's some confusion there. Okay. Very important. If all your listeners take away yeah. one thing, it's that I believe 50-50 is the wrong equation. 50-50 has been holding women back for 100 years. And what I mean by that is it's never 50-50. And so when you don't get 50-50, and this is what I found in my data, expectations and disappointment are what come out of that. And then people tend to give up and say, I might as well do it myself in the time it takes me to tell him how to do it. When you focus, we change our focus off of 50-50 and we focus on the full mustard situation, on ownership, mm -hmm. on someone who holds a card with full ownership, with full conception planning and execution, even if it's one card, you are bringing home the right type of mustard and it changes the dynamic of trust in your relationship. I found it over and over again in my, my beta testers. And this is the good news. The good news is science backs me up. Yeah. The good news is the science shows. And I went deep. I went deep with my, in, with my uh, con consultant uh, who was a gender division of labor expert, Professor Darby Saxby, and an intern I got out of her lab. Um, we went deep into the literature, into the science. And the truth is that fi perceived fairness is more important than actual mm -hmm. fairness. Because you don't even know what does actual fairness even mean? It's how we perceive it. And that's why your fair is going to look different than my fair. And I can't tell you what your fair is going to look like, but I can develop a system mm -hmm. so that you can develop your own fair. And that's really what fair play is. If you're interested in fair play, the book is available everywhere and it has four rules. The first is that all time is created equal. The second, reclaim your right to be interesting. 
Three, start where you are now. And four, establish values and standards. I think number four is critical, most critical. She says those rules will hopefully lead you to more fairness as you divvy up housework with your partner. Thank you to Eve. Next up, this guest, a corporate executive turned comedian, really gave me hope that I could maybe, if I wanted to, reinvent myself in my 40s, that I could, if I wanted to, have a career in comedy. And you know that I've been dabbling in stand-up and I've just had a few stints and I've, I love it. Maybe this is another thing that I'm going to suck at that I will just keep continue doing as, a, as my suckitude. A little bit more about Paul. He was a Facebook executive turned comedian. And he pursued an MBA early on in his career. Like I said, he worked at Facebook as well as Yahoo once upon a time. He finally decided to follow his passion and leap fully into comedy at age 45. And he's been quite successful. He's got a podcast called Crazy Money. He's got a book called You Should Totally Get an MBA. And he's been touring the country doing stand-up. And in this clip, we review his career trajectory. And he says something that really made me stop and laugh, proves he's a good comedian, because it's so honest too. He said, I don't have the discipline to be poor. Here's Paul. I'm obsessed with your career path. I kind of joked that I want to be Paul when I grow up. Um, I mentioned before we came on the recording line that I took my first comedy workshop last summer and had the courage to finally check that off my bucket list, but I I really love stand-up comedy and you have done something quite heroic, which is departed from the traditional business world where you were working at places like Facebook and Yahoo. You have an MBA from Dartmouth and went all in on stand-up comedy and were and are very successful at it. So for all of us listening thinking about pursuing a passion, but maybe, you know, we've got student loans, which you did, or we have the the benefits of working for a company. How do we do it? How did you do it? How, what was that day like when you're like, that's it, I'm quitting the corporate life? Or was it, was it a pro- process or was it just actually a moment? It was, it was kind of a process. I took, the first time I did stand-up comedy was during my first semester at business school. You know, I went to Dartmouth to, uh, to talk at Dartmouth to, to, to try to get a better job to make more money. And then one night at a talent show, I told jokes in front of friends and said, oh, this is what I want to do. And you don't want to spend $150,000 getting an MBA to find out that you want to be a stand-up comedian. That's not the outcome <laughs> you're looking for when you go to business school. So I had the bug in me, but I also had $80,000 in loans in 1997. And there was no chasing the dream. Then I knew I was, it's like, I got to get to work and I got to pay back this, this money. But eventually working at places like launch.com, then Yahoo, I saved some money and I was able to pay them back. And I was still single in 2005. So uh, not married. I was dating my now wife, but, but I was, uh, I, I, that was the point that I went out to LA and I, I, I went after comedy full time for two years But then when I got engaged to my wife, I thought, well, I'm not ready to be the guy who lives off his wife and let her pay the bills while I chase this dream. So I went back to work and I took a job at a small company called Facebook. Huh. And then you, I heard you said you won the Facebook lottery. What what does that mean? Well, I was one of the, I was one of the first 250 employees at Facebook. And as part of my comp plan, I got uh, stock options that ended up being worth 
uh, a tidy sum of cash. And so uh, after I left the company and paid off not just all my student loans, but my house and uh, my retirement, I was in a position where I said, okay, now I can chase the comedy dream and do it for real and go all in. And, and, uh, I fully committed back to comedy five years ago. Hmm. Man, having financial runway is, is very helpful. And you hear this over and over again, you know, people living in their cars or that the struggle is real when you're pursuing your passion. And I feel like that's, those are the stories that we hear that glamorize or rather not really glamorize, but they sort of glorify, right? The process of becoming an, a quote unquote artist or someone who's pursuing their passion. But what I feel like your story is very, in some ways, yes, um, inspirational, but, but practical. Like you didn't, you didn't, (laughs) you know, you didn't live in your car. You didn't just sell everything and you were very thoughtful about it. And frankly, you know, having savings was a great catalyst. Yeah. Farnoosh, I don't have the discipline to be poor. I mean, I don't have the strength. (laughs) I don't, I don't have the strength to struggle. I really don't. I mean, you know, and and yes, in some ways it's heroic that I walked away from a lot of money. Uh, and there still was a lot of money on the table at Facebook to, to pursue what I wanted to do. But really, you know, if I, sometimes I wonder, well, if I had less of a a cushion, would I be hungry or would I be getting after things a little bit more? I probably would be, but more likely I'd still be working. I'd be out there chasing uh, the next level of affluence, the next level of security. Um, And so uh, I'm just doing the best I can with the situation that I arrived at and who knows what would have happened if things worked out a different way. But in some ways, aren't you grateful for your path in that, um, yes, you got an MBA and it was close to six figures to afford that, but it has also become, you know, it's so much a part of the fabric of your story, you know, and you've got a book out called, um, you should totally get an MBA, not, (laughs) but you know, it, it all fed your material to some extent. And of course, the greatest stand-up comics pull from their lives and they have, you know, they tell the real stories of what they've experienced. And so maybe it was all for everything. Yeah. I'm extraordinarily grateful for my path. And I think it's been, it's been a tremendous adventure. The hardest part of my path, I think was actually when I didn't actually leave Facebook to go right into comedy, I left Facebook without a plan. And the, the, the biggest learning years I had were those few years after I left Facebook, where I learned that just having a certain amount of money doesn't solve all your problems. It doesn't make you a happy person. And that work really is something we all need in our lives however we defined it. We need a challenge. We need something to go after and reinventing myself as a comedian at 45 years old or however old I was when I started it back again has been that struggle for me. Reinventing your identity uh, at the lowest levels of a profession after you've had some pretty good success in other other categories really opens your eyes to um, kind of to, to, to where you were as a younger person. If 2020 is your year for reinvention, know that it is possible, you're capable, and if you'd like to go back and listen to Paul's full interview, that was episode 949. Last but not least, I had a end-of-year interview in 2019 with someone I've been admiring from a distance, along with 2 million other people, on Instagram. Busy Phillips, the actress, author, and social media star, joined me on So Money, and it was a pretty short interview, just 10 or so minutes. So I'm going to just replay the whole thing because the entire time we talked about money, how she made it, 
her first paycheck, how she tries to negotiate in Hollywood, her advice for anybody who's trying to earn what they're worth, including that time she walked away from what would become a hit show and why she says she's not regretful. Hey, Busy, how are you? Hi. Let's talk a little bit about money. When you think about how you learned about money as a kid, Busy, were there any early memories? I know you started working really young, um, but were there any like money moments as a kid that as a, an adult woman now, you're like, wow, that was a real learning lesson? I always worked. I always had jobs. Um, that was something that my parents tried to instill in me from a fairly young age. I was a babysitter. And then, um, you know, I got my first job at a mall when I was 14, I think. And then when I was... What store? I worked seasonally at uh, the body shop over the over Christmas or like over the holidays, um, making gift baskets and selling um, Satsuma orange smelling body wash. As one uh, does at the body shop, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, like seasonal mall help was... was the way to go when you were a kid. Um, and then, uh, and then I worked in restaurants. I worked at California pizza kitchen. Um, I taught theater, uh, to kids. I worked at a theater company and taught like preschoolers theater. Um, I also was a nanny one summer, uh, when I was 17, all while still working at the restaurant that I worked at as a host. I truly have been a person that have, has always worked. Like I'm just a person that works. And then um, started acting, making money as an actor when I was 17 years old in an industrial job, essentially for the Mattel Toy Corporation. Um, but my parents, you know, were always uh, insistent that, I take responsibility for the things that I had. So when I turned 16, um, my parents, you know, I grew up like upper middle class privileged and uh, my parents bought me a used car, but it was my responsibility to pay for the gas and to pay for the car insurance every month. I had to pay them whatever it was like a hundred bucks. I don't know, something like that. Um, and for clothing, you know, my mom had a very small budget for back to school clothes. So anything over that I had to pay for myself. And then when I was in high school, like she, we, I didn't get an allowance. Um, I had a job. And so all of the extracurricular stuff that I wanted to do movies and dinners and clothes and what, you know, whatever presents for people in the holidays, like I, I was on the hook for that myself. Um, and so you know, that just like instilled a really strong work ethic in me, I think, from a very young age. We know that people who have a good work ethic are usually good at earning. And so when you got like that first big paycheck, I don't know when that was for you. Do you remember the moment and, and what you how you felt and what you decided to do with it? Yeah. I mean, it was that job when I was 17, um, because up until then, I'd been, you know, earning minimum wage um, plus tips at a restaurant. And uh and uh, minimum wage at, you know, retail. Um, I, when I did that job for Mattel, I had, a, I got paid a ton of money for two weeks of work um, being a live Barbie doll at the toy fair. Um, <laughs> it's kind of incredible. It was an incredible job. Um, and 
I asked my parents if I could. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to have to put the money away or like how that was going to work. Um, but I did put a lot of it away. And then um, I bought my Honda Civic a car stereo system. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to take you back to the late nineties, but it had a detachable face. Um, and it was very exciting to me to be able to get like a cool CD player, uh, put into my car. I love it. Good choice. Fast forward to today. It's no secret. Your BFF, Michelle Williams, she, she is such a voice for women and equality. And I'm just curious, like from your perspective, busy, what is a tip that you would give that you practice personally when you're out there earning the money? And we know that transparency is really important, but sometimes you just don't know. And so what's a way that you advocate for yourself when it comes to earning money? I mean, my, my industry is is unique in so many ways. And, you know, um, and I'm also a privileged white woman. Um, so it's always going to be, it's all different for me. Hard for me to know if my advice is a thing that can work or would track, but I do have to say that in my career, I have had instances. I had one many years ago where the offer was well below my quote, you know, what I normally would get paid for an episodic television show. And, you know, my agents at the time were like, well, we think you should take it because the show is going to get picked up and it's going to go for a long time and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, but I'm worth more. I know that I'm worth more. I've done all of this work up until this point and I'm not going to take it. Like, why would I do that. And I ended up not taking it and they were not wrong. The show got picked up and was on the air for many years, but I have never regretted it. Not for a second, because, um, I think that knowing I think it always would have stuck in with me, you know, I wouldn't have been able to let it go. Um, because it because they didn't value me enough, and they're like, "Well, this is the um, this is the this is the most money we have for you," and it's like, "Well, well, then you don't want me that bad, you know? Like you, that's the bottom line. Um, I'm not worth enough to you." So uh, I think that there is something to knowing your worth and being able to like take the advice of people around you. Um, But at the end of the day, it's your call and you know what you're going to be okay with and what you're not, you know, and one of the things I do think that that having transparency and being open with other people, even even women who you may consider yourself in competition with is actually kind of vital as we're striving for pay equality, because that is a thing that, you know, we have to start to look out for one another. And, um, you know, you think about like these boys clubs and whatever, you think they don't communicate. You think they don't give each other advice on how to handle these situations or what to ask for or what to say when you're told no. Of course they do. They have historically speaking for years and that's, you know, part of the thing that we need to continue to work toward. Yeah, it sounds like what I'm hearing is be willing to walk away. 
Yeah, you have to be willing to walk away. Yeah. What would you say was your biggest financial win? Do you have a moment that you were like, I advocated for myself or, you know, just just anything, anything that, that would categorize as a, a so money moment? The show is called So Money. So Money. Um, that's so funny. We were just talking about the movie Swingers last night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's really weird. Um, a So Money moment. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, you know, I guess the last several years for me have been um, really transformative in terms of how um, I have been able to take control of, you know, making money um, and making the decisions on the kinds of things I want to do and partner with brands directly um, and, you know, monetizing my Instagram, um, you know, monetizing my Instagram was a huge, so money moment because I mean, I can't even tell you, I've gotten cornered at parties by actors, uh, who of many different levels asking my advice on how they get to do the thing that I have been able to do, um, because it's offered as a performer and an artist, so much financial freedom to not have to take a bad job to be able to, and that's, and that's one of the things Like when I say, I'm like speaking from a place of privilege, like it's very easy for me to say it's, you know, you have to be willing to walk away because I have that privilege. You know, I've also like been in the position where I couldn't walk away. Um, and then, you know, you're in a really tough spot. Um, and that can be, that can be a thing that ends up, sort of feeling like it holds you back, you know? Um, but yeah, I would say that that's definitely been really like a game changer for me. What's your financial goal for 2020? You know, I'm looking forward to building more relationships with brands and, uh, and continuing to figure out like what the next step my business looks like, um, personally, um, and whether that's, you know, continuing brand partnerships in the way that I've been doing, or if it's maybe something else, it might be something else. It'll be exciting to watch. And Thanks. I love that you're referring Thanks. to yourself as a business. Yeah. Cause you are a business. I think that's only that owning that is really, really um, awesome and busy. Thank you so much. Happy Thanks holidays. So and that's a wrap, my friends, ringing in the new year with some of the top conversations that I personally appreciated on So Money. 2020 has lots in store for us. And as always, please keep in touch. Send me your thoughts, your questions on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi, or you can also go on the website at somoneypodcast.com and send me your question by clicking on Ask Farnoosh. And I will respond. I try to respond to every single person. I really appreciate you. Thank you for sticking with the show. I promise 2020 will not disappoint. I hope your day is so money. 